Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series at the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Hello, welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of FEPS, the Foundation for European Progressive Studies in Brussels. My name is Laszlo Ander, I'm the Secretary General of FEPS. It's a real pleasure today to welcome to Feb Stokes a special guest, Mr. Guy Ryder, who is the Director General of the International Labour Organization, ILO, in Geneva. And he's a well-known personality of uh, the world of work. Uh, before the ILO, he was General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation and previously General Secretary of the International Confederation of Free Trade Unions. Mr. Raida, welcome to Feb Stokes. Thank you, Lasso. Very pleased to be uh, with you today. Let me start um, a conversation with something which the ILO invested a lot in, and we believe not only for workers in Europe, but also internationally very, very important in such a time of massive changes and transformation. Two years ago, the ILO uh, celebrated the centenary. It was not purely ceremonial, but uh, a lot of work and research went into studying the future of work. And I was reading with interest the materials that you published in those times. Could you, if you need to look back, highlight uh, the key points which you found in those times about the future of work? And obviously, I would also be interested in what followed in terms of practical steps out of uh, this effort. Yes, that's absolutely. The initiative on the future of work was a centerpiece of the ILO's centenary celebrations. And what was the objective Well, I I think we all understood at that time, and it's still true today, uh, that the world of work was undergoing extraordinary and transformative change uh, at that time. And let's remember, we're talking before we ever heard about COVID-19. And what were the drivers of change that we identified at that time? Well, they're pretty obvious, aren't they? Firstly, of course, technology, digitalization, the fourth industrial revolution. Second, and I think it's more and more entering into people's calculations, climate change and what we need to do about climate change. I think it's too easily forgotten when we say that climate change is the result of uh, human activity. Most of that activity is work or work related. So this is very much a world of work issue. Thirdly, uh, issues of globalization. I don't need to tell you too much about uh, globalization issues, but at that time, 2019, we were seeing a sort of a questioning of the, the forward path of globalization. Even then, people were beginning to think, well, maybe we're going down a different route. Protectionism was being talked about. A strategic mm-hmm. autonomy was on the table. Uh, and, and the other mega driver I want to mention is, is demography. Let's not forget it at a time when Europe is wrestling with the challenges of um, aging populations, a lot of the world is is trying to deal with their youth bulges. And these differentials also have a major impact on, on the world of work. So I think at the beginning, it was what do we do to navigate these transformative changes? Uh, and for the ILO with a mandate, Laszlo, of social justice, how do we make sure that these changes move in the direction of social justice, the things that progressive politics really cares about? So what do we do with all of this? We can talk about the detail. We set up a global commission to look into these issues, co-chaired by President Ramaphosa of South Africa and Prime Minister Levin of Sweden, good friends of yours. And we produced a report. Then we went to the ILO's conference and negotiated together. And don't forget, this is the governments, employers and workers of the world 
We adopted a centenary declaration on the future of work. And uh, to, to summarize that, um, I would say this is the blueprint for the ILO uh, moving into its second century of activities. Of course, COVID came almost immediately after that. Mm-hmm. And that's complicated the story, but it's, it's not rendered all of this work um, redundant. It means we have to apply it in the the very challenging circumstances of today. Uh, Yes, indeed. I wonder if uh, you could highlight some kind of best practices, the importance of social dialogue in the field of um, tackling these transformative challenges. In the broadest sense, I think the major conclusion is that we need to invest, our societies need to invest in three major areas. Uh, The first area is to invest in people and their Mm -hmm. capacities. And here, We sort of um, focused in on social protection. And I think the COVID-19 pandemic has just underlined how inadequate social protection arrangements are. Uh, We need to focus on skills and, and education, not just workplace education, but a lifelong process of education that goes from early learning through constant reskilling right through the work cycle. So people and their capacities is the first area of investment. The second area of investment is in what we call the institutions of work, the laws, the regulations, the processes that for a hundred years we've developed to try to govern labor markets, make them social markets. And with this transformation of work, You know, we can see very clearly that new areas of work are developing that are really not fitting into the established categories. I I think of the gig economy and things like that. So the second area of investment is all of these institutions of work. And finally, and perhaps most obviously, investing in the jobs of the future. You know, we have to really work out where these decent jobs are coming from. And again, I don't think I'm going to surprise you with some of the areas we focused upon, the green economy, self-evidently, the care economy as well, and then developing infrastructure in the broadest possible sense, physical infrastructure, social infrastructure, digital infrastructure. And you've mentioned social dialogue, Laszlo, and I think that is the cross-cutter here. Everything we have to do, I think the experience of Europe shows, and I think it's a lesson learned in other regions, that where we can get governments, business and labor to sit together and work out practical solutions, we tend to do very, very well. And the other perhaps reference point I should mention are international labor standards, the conventions and recommendations, which are, if you like, the lifeblood of our organization. So that's how we're seeing it. Um, you have been highlighting Europe, I suppose, because in many European countries, you see very strong institutionalized social dialogue and a kind of advanced thinking about the issues you listed, maybe also some of the best practices. But can we be proud and cautious enough at the same time that, okay, we identify that the European social model is probably an inspiration for many, but at the same time, understand that Europe also is not perfect and there's a lot to do. How do you assess at this moment the European social model, what we call a European social model from this point of view? Yeah, the words you you choose are interesting, Laszlo. I, I, I think Europe should not only be proud of, but should be appreciative of the achievements of the social model. Everything that has been achieved in Europe through dialogue, through cooperation, through taking into consideration the equity of the policy packages that Europe has produced over the decades. And it's inspired the European uh, project from the beginning. At the same time, I think that appreciation needs to go with a cold-headed, a really objective understanding that this is not an easy path to take. 
And if we just think that the solutions of yesterday automatically applied till tomorrow will give good results, then we'd be making a mistake. My belief is we have to work constantly to update, to refine, to adapt the social model. I don't suggest that we change its basic principles to make sure that it remains relevant and that it has the approval of people. You know, I think social dialogue, for example, will be judged by voters, by societies, not as a doctrine or an ideology, but on the basis of the results that it produces. And the fact of the matter is, the balance sheet of results in Europe is very, very positive. That's not always appreciated. I think there's a counter-narrative out there, which progressive Mm -hmm. politics needs to be aware of. And I, I know you spent your time trying to do some of this. Let's not believe that everybody agrees automatically uh, with the model. But I have to say, if Europe stays faithful to it, its social model, then it's going to be stronger for it. And I'm you know, obviously delighted about what was adopted in Gothenburg with the pillar, delighted about the action plan put in place in, in Porto and uh, Thanks to our Portuguese friends for their leadership in that regard. I think this is a renewal, an adaptation, an application of the social model in Europe in ways which can only be positive. So I've got a good feeling about all of that. Yes, indeed. Uh, four years ago, indeed, um, uh, the European Pillar of Social Rights uh, was adopted. And earlier this year, the so-called action plan pointing to new targets, ambitious targets to increase further the employment rate and lift people out of poverty or social exclusion. Plus, um, what I think was a surprise for many, a new and ambitious target on lifelong learning. And that just highlights... Uh, the importance of connecting employment policies on the one hand, education and training and investing in the necessary institutions on the other hand. But do you think Europe should even go further? Because now also issues like minimum wage coordination are on the agenda, a territory to which the EU did not really stretch in previous decades. Would you think uh, intervention in wage dynamics is also something the EU should? That's what I know the complications of this uh, debate. <laughs> If we have this discussion in Swedish, we might have a different discussion. I know the complications, but I also understand what is at stake. You know, the ILO, for example, has a convention about minimum wages, but it's not saying, we're not trying to say the level at which the minimum wage should be in any country, but Mm -hmm. we are pointing to the considerations and the mechanisms which are useful in setting a minimum wage. Mm -hmm. What I would say is, around the world, we observe a renewal of interest in minimum wages and minimum wage setting. Outside Mm -hmm. Europe, this is becoming a very, very big discussion. And for good reasons. People are, I think, quite reasonably, and in this time of pandemic and the crisis engendered by the pandemic, looking to policymakers, the institutions of public life to guarantee them basic minima, be it minima of social protection when they don't have work or the ability to live decently when they do have work. So it seems to me that there are two demands, which I think we should be responding to. One is that In whatever circumstances you find yourself because of misfortune in life, you should be able to rely on a minimum level of social protection. This links into debates about universal basic income. I'm not Mm -hmm. 100% a fan of that phrase, but we do need to put in place flaws of social protection. And the reality in the world today is that the majority of workers, 53%, have no social protection of any description. So that's one piece, social protection. 
And is it not reasonable to think as well that if you're working, working full time, you should take home a sufficient income to enable you and your family to live decently? These seem to me to be minima of social policy. Now, how you establish those minima, be it through collective bargaining, be it through legislation, how that plays out in the European field, I know is a complex discussion. And I'm very respectful as an organization which tries to set universal labor standards. Mm. We have to be respectful of the diversity of national circumstances and practices. And that's a complex debate, but those objectives should stay in our mind. Wonderful. Thank you very much for this uh, very, very subtle explanation. And um, I think you underlined uh, that there is an increased interest right, in the world in um, setting minima also in terms of incomes. I would assume this is connected with um, greater awareness on of income inequality and also the various implications and consequences of uh, income inequality. This debate was not so strong 10, 15, 20 years ago, right? So we see also that various multilateral institutions, even the IMF, are more interested in uh, inequality than uh, before. Uh, but is it, is it just talk, for example, in G20, uh, meetings, or there are practical consequences also if um, political leaders speak more about inequality. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right to highlight the increased interest in inequality. Of course, in an international debate, there's a lot of discussion about is inequality real? And the answer is inequality between countries globally has been compressed, and China's uh, performance is, is interesting in that regard. But in practically any country, I think every country you care to mention, inequality is getting bigger. So the social perception uh, is, and it's a real perception, is that inequality is getting worse. And yes, this has been recognized. You've mentioned some of the work done by the International Monetary Fund, and it's it's really quite impressive that the IMF is pointing not just to the social dangers of inequality, but the economic dangers of inequality. It can retard job creation and growth. So even in those hard-headed terms, we have problems. I think it's really interesting as well that in the United Nations 2030 Agenda on Sustainable Development, there is a goal. One of the 17 goals is specifically about reducing inequality. Mm. And that answers a question you put, Laszlo. There yes. is global recognition that inequality has reached unacceptable proportions. That was a political debate 20 years ago. Now it's a political given. People are working to reduce inequality. And here I think we have to look at the experience of the pandemic, uh, Leslie. I mean, what have we all lived through? I mean, we've all lived through a terrible pandemic, but we haven't all been in the same boat. Uh, we know that for some people, this pandemic has been about inconvenience, tedium, stress. <laughs> For other people, it's been about survival and fear. It really has been an existential threat. I'm not talking about the health threat. I'm talking about the economic and social threat. And I think that's made people acutely aware that inequality now has reached levels where, the way I look at it, it's sort of hardened into structural injustice. It's not just inequality, it's injustice. So, you know, when some parts of the population have access to digital connectivity, educational options, social protection, comfortable accommodation to get through the uh, pandemic, and others have none of those things. This goes beyond inequality as a problem of degree. It's about, as I've said, structural uh, injustice. And uh, I think that sharpened sensitivities. 
Are we right to believe that governments on both sides of the Atlantic probably gave a better response to the pandemic recession than the great financial crisis uh, 10 years before, also from the point of view of you know, investing seriously yes. in income protection, job saving uh, uh, schemes, if possible, also by using social dialogue. I'd like to believe that we learned something from 2008 to 2009 when I think now there is recognition that the premature move to austerity was a mistake and it dampened down recovery that was frankly, still incomplete when COVID-19 hit us. So yes, I think governments have done better. Look at the just the volume of resources spended, spent on uh, economic and social response. It's, it's around the 16 trillion US dollar uh, level. That's enormous. And yes, a lot of ad hoc interventions were made to protect jobs, to protect incomes, to protect enterprises. I think we would all applaud that effort. But here is the problem. That effort was massively unequal. So to put it in simplistic terms, the rich world, and we could include Europe, grosso modo, in in the rich world, and the United States spent very large sums of resources. They had the fiscal firepower and space to keep their economies going. And they also had access to vaccines in larger numbers than other parts of the world. And that, frankly, puts those countries, and we can celebrate it, onto a fast track for recovery. The same is not true for the emerging world. The same is not true for the developing world. And uh, more and more, what we are seeing is a great divergence in the recovery process, with the advanced economies growing back, not quite to where they started in terms of uh, income, GDP, uh, and employment, but they're coming back quickly. For the, uh, for the developing world, the opposite is true. They don't have fiscal resources, they don't have vaccines, and they don't have much prospect of recovery. And that is where I think, and I hope Europe can take a really leading role in all of this, the financing for development agenda becomes so important. I think we're all aware that the IMF has just made a, an extraordinary, unprecedented issue of uh, special drawing rights, $650 billion, if properly directed. And if that's backed up by more equitable vaccine distribution, this could level the playing field of recovery, enabling the developing world, the emerging economies, to get on this faster track of recovery. Because on current trajectories, and I'll be saying this at the UN, we have a meeting tomorrow, uh, the, the real risk is in a world where we promised to leave nobody behind, we're leaving the developing and emerging economies behind. And you know, nobody in Europe can afford to say, too bad, that doesn't matter to me. It does matter for moral reasons, for health reasons, and for social stability and economic reasons as well. Um, so I think this is one of the biggest global challenges ahead. And Europe's voice needs to be, I think, very strongly in support of a inclusive and sustainable recovery. At the moment, we don't have it. Indeed, um, uh, I understand that we praise uh, both Europe and North America for macro-level interventions, which facilitate a faster uh, recovery. I'm just wondering whether we still also need to highlight the importance of micro-interventions in specific sectors, uh, because the pandemic probably pushed much more people to the gig economy than what was the, the case before. And the ILO work on the future of work can, connects here yeah. with the pandemic effect. You know, we would need to encourage everybody to look at seriously what kind of protection needs to be enhanced or rearrangement in this specific new form of employment, if you want to. I think you make a great point. Um, 
if you look at the aggregates, this is so often the case uh, in the world, isn't it? If you look at the aggregates, you know, that $16 trillion spent, the effort made, it's impressive. And you think this is positive. But policymaking isn't just about spending very large sums of money. It's about the engineering of labor markets, the design of social protection systems, which are sustainable, uh, supporting enterprises who need it, you know, getting rid of the dead weight of fiscal support for those who don't really need it. And then going back, as you've said, to all of those discussions, all of those discussions in our future of work um, uh, initiative, you know, how are we, we talk about lifelong learning. It's a great example because it's in the social pillar. That's great. And we all agree uh, that we need lifelong learning, but what are the delivery mechanisms? Who is responsible? Is it the employer? Is it the worker? Is it the state? How are we going to pay for it? Again, these are questions which they're beginning of a discussion. They're not the solution. Mm -hmm. They are an objective. And now, as you say, we have to get down to that hard work of designing how we're going to turn these very honorable ambitions into practical policies. And uh, by the way, Laszlo, I would make the same points about climate change and the move towards carbon neutrality. We all agree we want to see it, but more and more we know that this is an extraordinary challenge of um, reorganizing productive systems, probably unprecedented in our lifetimes. I'm grateful for the points you made about the global south, uh, because uh, sometimes uh, in Europe we might be just inward looking and uh, not seeing enough what could be done and what needs to be done globally. Uh, but could you share just a few thoughts about the United States? Uh, because from your position, you can also judge uh, the very important policy development. Because in the pandemic response, I understand they, they really decided to do a lot more against child poverty, for example, or strengthening the bargaining power of unions in the last uh, six months, driven by the understanding that something needs to be done also about the wage dynamics uh, in the United States. How do you see the strengths of this policy change in the United States? I think you're right to point to this. I mean, everybody that I speak to in the United States, be they in government or in the labor movement or indeed in business, say they do not remember a U.S. administration, be it Democratic or Republican, that has been so focused on issues of labor and labor markets and so strongly committed to improving situations which we know are problematic in the United States. So you have private sector trade union organizing levels in the United States at 7 or 8%. And this is consequence of a certain set of uh, circumstances. So it's a government that wants to improve protection of the right to organize for American workers. And, you know, and they, they don't just say it. They've been out there. They've been doing it. They've been uh, talking about the way Amazon has interacted with unions in organizing attempts in, in Alabama. They are looking at issues of, of, of child poverty, of low incomes. They want to get wages up. Uh, they want to get a fairer distribution of income and, frankly, a fairer deal in labor markets. I think this is something which is remarkable. I think it offers a tremendous opportunity for dialogue and cooperation uh, between the United States, this administration, and European progressive politics, because, I mean, we're talking, not only talking the same language, we're actually trying to do some of the same things in, okay, uh, quite different circumstances. And I think that this sort of transatlantic dialogue, which we talk about so very much, it needs to be extended. I think, you know, I've always seen it this way. What you're doing out of Brussels for Europe 
it needs a global extension. We need to create, I think, a momentum to move the way our economies work, the way our labor markets work in ways for which I think there is a real popular demand. I think people, particularly again in the painful light of experience of the pandemic, say we need to take social protection more seriously. We need to take um, the learning process more seriously. We need a fairer deal at work than perhaps we've been getting uh, in, in recent years. That's not a European reflex. It's not an American reflex. I think it's a global reflex and therefore a political opportunity and responsibility. With this point, you are bringing me exactly to the question which I thought should come at the end of our conversation, which is about multilateralism, because um, we had so many different crises in the last um, about 12 years uh, that at last, uh, you know, multilateral structures of global governance had to be taken seriously. How do you see from your office this um, evolution? This is probably still an evolution, but a very serious change on the one hand of, uh, you know, multilateral institutions in general, but secondly, for specifically the questions of the world of work being discussed and not marginally, but very centrally in the debates of global governance. On, on your first general point about multilateralism, you know, we live in a, a time of paradoxes and contradictions. I think it is fair to say that today the case for multilateralism is being made by crises, the crisis of climate change, the crisis of COVID-19. Nobody can imagine, I believe, that these two challenges can be met except through multilateral cooperation. You can't conceive of a, nat- a national solution to climate change or to COVID-19. So, you know, global challenges, global responses. And yet that situation coexists when uh, with a situation in which political commitment to multilateralism, I think, is at historic low points, or it has been in recent years. Mm. Yes, it's about this difficult relationship between the United States and China in so many areas, But it goes beyond that. I I think we have, again, a narrative out there, and it's there in parts of Europe as well, Laszlo, that, you know, multilateralism, you know, is somehow too distant uh, from what people want and care about. You have this unfortunate slogan of taking back control, and that can be applied to multilateralism as well. I've heard it applied to multilateralism. So I think we are at a moment when whatever people's hesitations, whatever the tensions are in the world, we have to rededicate to multilateralism simply because nothing else can work. Secondly, you make the point, can we put the things I care about, I'm working on, work, social justice at the center? For the first time in a long time, and we've already discussed some of the reasons for this in, in this conversation, I do believe people are looking at these things in a new way. Uh, we do understand that access to a decent job, being able to have resort to social protection, a key determinant of a secure life, of human security and of stable societies. You know, we had to go through long cycles of history when our ideas haven't been winning the arguments always. Not about the quality of the arguments, it's just how our societies have been. I tend to think that wheel is turning. We see certain election results around the world in Europe and elsewhere. 
I don't think it's too much to believe that the wheel is turning in the right direction now, both on multilateralism and these issues of labor market and social justice. Thank you so much for your thoughts about social justice and uh, global governance. Dear uh, Director General, dear Guy, thank you for your time and uh, these very clear explanations um, about what the ILO has been doing about this uh, dramatic crisis and transformations in which uh, social rights are never taken for granted, but it's always uh, a very serious work, a matter of uh, good um, analysis, judgment, dialogue and decisions uh, that we make steps uh, forward in sometimes very difficult circumstances. I thank you for your time and also I thank our listeners uh, for their Attention. Thank you, Lazo. Thank you for your invitation and my greetings to all our friends. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag BEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned. <laughs>